the U.S. has built a lot of like cyber policy infrastructure, right? So there's dozens of subgroups, agencies, working groups, you know, cyber review board, uh, CISA, all have been set up in the last five to 10 years. And the, the strategy looks like you could actually pull all of them together, give them oversight, get them working in lockstep, uh, knowing who to call. And they specifically say they want the rest of the world or the rest of the United States uh, all actors in it to know who to call within the federal government if they need it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, welcome to this week's episode of Cybersecurity Standup. This is an Uptix Live event, and we're really excited to be here on uh, this week. We're joined by Crystal Ponish, Jeff Rorig, and Richard Steinen. Um, thank you for being here. We're really excited to dive in. Um, this week, we're talking about the National Cybersecurity of a cybersecurity initiative strategy document that was released last week. Most of you probably already know it's about a 40-page document that kind of did the rounds in the industry and hit all the headlines. Um, but there are some key points we wanted to discuss with you. Um, from my perspective, it's very easy to see the words White House and have all kinds of opinion. But for this discussion, we're going to dive into the sort of meat and potatoes here. Um, and Richard, I'm going to turn to you first. You're our featured guest. What are your big takeaways from this document? Yeah, I think the takeaway both from reading the document and my personal reaction, because usually I'm all over these and cr criticizing them, this will never work, this is not thought through, et cetera. And my re initial reaction, as well as practically every analysis I see in the last week, is that, hey, not bad, well done, you know, because it finally makes sense. Um, it, when I looked, When I look at a strategy document, I look for the goals. There's got to be goals. And quite often, government strategies don't have goals. They just, you know, we want things to be better. So and so we're going to do something. In this case, like that. yeah, you know, it's it's just kind of the strategy 101. Define your goals. And then how do you get there? And the next thing is tactics. And, of course, this is a strategy document. So there are very few tactics in it. They're just more sub-goals. Um, one thing that I haven't seen anybody else point out is, you know, an overarching five pillars, how the government's going to tackle a problem they've been trying to tackle for 20 years now. Um, since you might remember Melissa Hathaway's huge, you know, 60-day cyber policy review document that came out, uh, and that was the Obama administration early on. And prior to that, the Bush administration had cybersecurity policies, if not strategies. The the But the one thing that that is different in my mind is that it's a shot across the bow of U.S. adversaries. So in the preamble, they call out, they name and shame the adversaries, which we all know are China, Russia, uh, Iran, and North Korea in that order, <clears throat> and specifically China, right? It's like China is the most, uh, we see the most attacks from them. They're sophisticated, organized, funded, et cetera. And I think it's very important to, to lead with that. And then throughout the document, there are several places where it says they will bring to bear all of the tools of national power to counter the threat. That's going way beyond all of our economic ability, all of our regulatory ability. When the U.S. talks about its national power, that's inclusive of its military and nuclear weapons. And it's kind of scary to think that they're pulling out the big guns as they are in a policy document, but for sure 
policymakers and strategists at those four adversaries are going over this very carefully and reading the nuanced uh, message that's hidden in it. Given that it is a, a strategy document yet has these uh, overtones of big guns and maybe a little bit, you know, name droppy, what is actually implementable about this document? Is there anything that is moving into tactics territory? What should cybersecurity professionals be looking out for? Richard, I'll go back to you, but guys, feel free to chime in too. Yeah, I think the you know the the U.S. has built a lot of like cyber policy infrastructure, right? So there's dozens of subgroups, agencies, working groups, um, a you know cyber review board. Uh, CISA, all have been set up in the last five to 10 years. And that the strategy looks like you could actually pull all of them together, give them oversight, get them working in lockstep, uh, knowing who to call. And they specifically say they want uh, the rest of the world or the rest of the United States, uh, all actors in it, to know who to call within the federal government if they need it. Uh, leaving out some very important ones because they're incident response people at National Guards in most states. Um, and even FEMA has a cyber incident response capability. You can call them and you will get uh, free help for your cyber incident. They don't mention that. <clears throat> Not sure they know about that. Um, the uh, part of it that gets talked about the most is, okay, how are they going to shift liability onto the service providers and vendors, right? Which is scary. And when the government starts talking about regulations, it seems to be the one thing they can actually accomplish is new regulations to push it off. And there's a little taint in there of, you know, the CISA and most government agencies going all the way back to U.S. CERT have always been, you know, at kind of like neophytes thinking that the problem is vulnerabilities. And if only everybody just patched all their systems, we wouldn't have any problems. And that, you know, I learned that lesson when I was a neophyte Gartner analyst, and there was a new Solaris vulnerability, and I said, everybody's got to patch right away. First call I took from a CIO at a big company said, you're an idiot. He walked me through why that is an impossibility, just not going to happen. So I never again said patch now. And yet, you know, the government's at that stage of 20 years behind the time. And if you're constantly saying that and you're convinced that the problem is people don't patch and you're looking for a solution, the solution is, hey, let's not have vulnerabilities created by vendors. So there's a li it's tainted a little bit by that idea. Um, and yet they're looking at how to uh, enforce a regime to, to get people to do a better job of developing their software. And of course, that's another impossible task, right? You can't, yes, you could get Solar Winds to do a better job. Yes, you could get Microsoft to do a better job. They know how to do a better job. But you're not going to get the startup that Y Combinator is funding who's going to release something that is completely vulnerable until they get traction. And they won't come back and secure it until they have a million users. Yeah, it's that that tacked on security. Crystal, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I found Richard's points to be so interesting um, and really underlines I think the need for production system security at every level. So I think the White House is doing a great job, at least of attempting to fill these vulnerabilities or these gaps. And to Richard's point, you can never catch every vulnerability. So you can secure the software supply chain. You can 
you can do your best, but there will always be new vulnerabilities. There will always be zero days. So you have to secure a production system, which means securing containers or workloads at runtime and securing the physical infra infrastructure that they live on and kind of at every layer. So that's that's kind of my thought, Jack. Yeah. I take a, um, a risk approach to it, right? <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's what this is really. We're trying to reduce the amount of risk that there is to, to data subjects. So at a very high level, the strategy announces five pillars that they're, we're targeting for improvements and for risk mitigation strategies. So looking at the tactics, yeah, we can talk about a vulnerability over here or, or a particular security measure over there. But the reality is uh, if, if we think at a higher level, when we think strategically, because this is a strategic announcement, what we're going to look at is a trend directionally in the, you know, more laws, more statutory regulations, um, requirements for the private sector, especially, right? It's going to be some inflation there for having better security abstractly, right? It's probably going to be measured by, did you get breached? It's probably going to be measured by, did you violate a data privacy regulation? And, um, you know, it'll probably be enforced by fines, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a strategy document. So the tactics that are going to pan out aren't tactics on what the CISO is going to do about vulnerability management. The tactics that are going to pan out are going to, are certainly going to be statute and regulation. And the way that that's written in modern times is like, G, like GDPR, right? GDPR provides uh, seven pillars of, of privacy um, uh, uh, areas that they re regulate and uh, provides, you know, it's, it's almost like guidance, to be honest. GDPR is so unbelievably vague because it's set through um, case law precedent which is what I like about this strategy. It's more in line with what the global community has been doing. Mm. And the global community has proven that to be very successful. So rather than get up and, and just create a bunch of micromanaging things, right? Let's, um, let's do things with Safe Harbor. Let's, uh, let's, let's develop strategies that say, we're going to start holding you liable, um, private sector. And how we're going to do that, that's going to un uh, unfold you know, from the, from the different areas of government, I assume this is not going to be solely an executive branch, um, executive, you know, executive branch call to action. That's going to be something that's called call to action to all branches. But we're going to, see, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting things come out of this and all of those things thematically improving security in the private sector, especially that means money for our budgets. CISOs, we're going to, you know, you finally get to spend them, you know, CISOs, uh, we have a, a very hard time securing budget to do anything. It's the biggest complaint that we bitch about, um, and that's for good reason. So what I see, and as a, I'm a data privacy nerd, and I'm a huge data privacy activist, the breaches that I see in the news day to day infuriate me. Um, the, the repeat breaches, the causes of these breaches, the gross negligence, when I think about the layoffs on the DevOps team from Company X, and then I see the breach happen, um, it's it's infuriating. So I, I can't wait to see CISOs uh, become more important in the C-suite for the private sector. On the topic of budget, I thought the strategy document did a good job of laying out the case for doing all this. At, and they're basically referring to the trillions of dollars that they're investing in infrastructure. And if they're going to invest that much, then they should do something to defend it and de-risk it. 
And so it sounds like some of the budget's going to come from the CHIP Act and other infrastructure bills that we, that we passed already. And that's what they're starting with too, right? It's critical infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, you know, part of uh, part of security. I also, I love this because uh, historically, when we talk about the government and security, it's kind of like they don't know what they're doing. You know, the government, uh, they're always like 10 years behind the times, but they got, I mean, there's something that a lot of CISOs don't get. Availability is your game, CISOs, okay? The availability of your website is, is a complete, total component of a security program, right? Um, and so critical infrastructure availability, right, the, uh, the fault tolerance and the resiliency of critical infrastructure, that's a security problem, right? Yep. And I, I think that come like I think that really underlies the point that this is a national effort effort or it's a team effort, right? We can't have silos. This isn't just living in security any further. Like security is everyone's responsibility because our critical infrastructure is our cloud security infrastructure, or vice versa. Um, I'm really happy to see we're taking it seriously. And that companies will have more money to invest in unifying efforts and breaking silos and ensuring we're protected because there's two sides of this. We work at a software vendor or we work for software vendors. So we see that side of it. The flip side of that is that we're also end users. We're all using this. Um, I can't help but feel happy to see some good and exerted effort to continuing to defend our infrastructure. Good. Yeah, Jack, you meant avail or you mentioned availability and how important that is to the CISO. The the strategy document fell short, I think, when they addressed what they call a catastrophic cyber incident, right? And so they're, you know, referring to what we're all afraid of is we won't have the internet, let alone power, telecom, yeah. et cetera. Um, so they, the only solution proposed is a blanket cyber insurance because they know full well that the federal government's going to be doing some bailing out to get things working again. The one thing that they, that they didn't plan that they're not proposing a plan for is disaster recovery. How do you actually spin up the internet and the data centers that make it up uh, and the telecom that puts it all together? How do you plan that and be ready for it? Because that's, we all know, that's exactly the first step is convene your incident response team and we're not going to have one. So we'll, we'll yeah. be scrambling. It's interesting. I didn't think about that. But I, um, yeah, I, I, I do like your point about the cyber insurance. Uh, so I, I think I wrote in my blog, uh, I've been in my career, my 10 plus years as a CISO, I've spent about eight hours working on cyber. Because <laughs> 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 it's like, answer these four questions. It's like, are you doing vulnerability scanning? It's like, no, of course I'm doing vulnerability scanning. It's <laughs> yep. the, the yep. cheapest thing on my menu. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what's it, it is, uh, I think the, one of the problems is that cyber insurance that we purchase, if, uh, private companies especially, and public companies that I've worked at, we've spent, I mean, we just go with like some cheapo solution. And then I, I remember we, um, uh, there was an incident at a company that I worked at that resulted in a $2 million loss due to a phishing email. And I, I don't even know if we ever executed on the cyber insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Because the I rates will that, go up. That's right. That, that's sort of the next tier of questions that comes up for me is what are the trickle down effects here in terms of, should people be trying to reallocate budget at this point? Who should be thinking about that? What's going to change about the cyber insurance industry? Do small businesses need to be, what do they need to be doing? So I'd love to hear, uh, Crystal, let's start with you. 
any advice that we could provide at this point, especially to small business owners? Who should we be guiding here? I think this is going to have the biggest impact, um, like we said, on kind of high security use cases, critical infrastructure, probably the larger enterprises who who are responsible for a lot of consumer data um, or would be the most likely attack vector for a nation state actor. I'm going to assume as who needs to take this the most seriously. Gotcha. Richard, would you agree with that? I agree with that. Um but more to your question, I think the the way that it seems to work out historically is government, you know, proposes they're going to uh, give you additional coverage, you know, for your risk. What they actually end up doing is being reinsurance for the insurance companies because the insurance companies are very good at lobbying. Um, so they'll be done and there'll be a trillion dollars to cover them. So they feel like they can extend more uh, insurance to people and not worry about the consequences if everybody claims at once. If, if it's followed, uh, you know, the way that it's, it's set up, right? Start with critical infrastructure, implement safe harbor. Uh, if you're a small business, right? Um, uh, first of all, if you're a startup company funded by Wacom, yeah, you're not doing anything, right? Uh, right. <laughs> just, oh, but, but read about SOC compliance, startup founders, all right? And just at least think about it when you're doing things because you might make this like trivial decision and it can have millions of dollars of impact later when you, when you need to get a, uh, a, some sort of compliance to please your customers. That said, um, if you're mid-market, right? If you're a small business, you're going to get to see this play out from the critical infrastructure companies first. Uh, you're, you're going to get to see what ha- what they have to do. So you're going to get some time to prepare. Uh, don't sit on your hands, right? You start working on uh, increasing that budget. And this that's a, more of a message for CEOs out there who probably aren't on the call. But CISOs um, use this as, you know, hey, the strategy means that this is coming down the pipeline. It's going to be cheaper for us to implement slowly over time than it is to for us to scramble and do it quickly so you can get some money there um look at what the other companies are getting dinged for right um look look at what and see what other companies are are, are uh, if anybody's being prosecuted or charged for anything uh, pay attention to that and um if you if you have to wait to the last minute the safe harbor is going to let's say a get out of jail free card essentially right it's going to give you some grace um so you'll have some some like some time you'll, you'll be given some forgiveness. Um, it's, it's going to be judiciary, I think, right? I think this strategy will play out with judiciary discretion, which is going to be sensitive. I'm loving our featured guest here. <laughs> you won't believe what he's doing, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you said something about paying attention. Um, we have, you know, we've all seen so many of these documents come from the white house of various administrations that we tend to go, oh, okay, let the policy wonks, you know, worry about that right now. But I think this one is the one we have to start paying attention because it does call for working with Congress and creating regulations. Uh, this is, pro- you know, cybersecurity is probably one of the few uh, nonpartisan issues. So implementation can be very partisan. Um, so everybody. Oh, there's some partisan stuff for this, though, right? Because oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna sneak in, you know, uh, solar energy into a cybersecurity bill, then yeah, there's a little bit of that going on. Um, but there will be regulations uh, that will be informed by the strategy, so we do have to start paying attention. Yeah, and hopefully, and I, I mean, so the, like, look at CPRA and CCPA, right? Uh, GDPR pops out. We got then we got CCPA. 
pops up and it's kind of like it's GDPR ish, except that in a very California way, you know, we have the propositional uh, election system in California. Um, we took it like mandated these tactical things in the regulation that like were just completely orthogonal to the like spirited nature of like being deliberately vague and allowing things to play out in case law, right? right. Uh, because now, you know, it, it's technology, right? Um, it's not, <laughs> popular vote is not the best way to handle something that is, um, requires a, a select few experts to understand effectively. But we'll see. Uh, that, that's my biggest fear is that this is a strategy, Doc, and those tactics could be uh, prescriptive, right? Yeah. I hope that they're not. Yeah, I'm not usually a proponent of regulations or laws, for that matter. Um, but I attended the first floor vote in the House for the very first breach disclosure law. And I was fully for it because at the time there were 34 states with breach disclosure requirements and it made the job tougher for uh, enterprises that had customers in each of those states. They had to comply with 34 different things. Today it's 50 that first vote was in 2005. There have been House floor votes practically every session ever since on a breach disclosure law. And even the ones that get voted on are completely watered down. So you'll still have to comply with California 1386 as a separate uh, law. And, you know, the idea was let's have one law that goes for the whole country and the, and the uh, outlying um, uh, state, non states. And so I always bring that up to talk about, okay, yeah, let's have a really well-crafted law and yeah, how are we going to get that, right? Nobody can vote on it. Nobody can pass it, get it through. I'm just thinking about there's this kind of core conflict that we continue to see where de the innovation on the development side almost always outpaces regulation or security. It's almost, it's so challenging to keep up. Um, and that's also where some of the biggest threats lie. Yep. Yeah, it's always the you know what's the order. First, we have the threats. Then it, um, responses are developed by the vendors for the most part, and sometimes they get worked into standards. And then finally, a regulation will come along that refers to the standard. Uh, and of course, you know, NIST is creating those standards, so it's it is the government working on them. I'm hoping that there's there's less uh, things pointing to standards. I, I, what I want to see is more. Uh, uh, you know, using the stick for situations where uh, bad things have happened, like once there's a breach, right? Um, I, I don't like to see prescription in how the security is in place, but uh, uh, prescription about, I think GDPR you know, is a good example here, right? Uh, users need to be, uh, they ch changing PII to uh, personal data. Uh, my data is not data that is uh, metadata about me. My data is my data. It's data that relates to me, right? That picture of a car that I took, my friend's car, right? That's my data, right? That's, and it needs to be treated the same as my social security number. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I like about the whole, you know, not using standards to mandate security programs because I, a lot of times, to be perfectly frank, people just misunderstand NIST or they, they refer, refer to a version of NIST that's too old or um, they, they have some other cool technology that's just not in NIST yet, despite the fact that NIST has 
um, is flexible. But anyways, I can go on but and on about that. I, I think the White House agrees with you because they are all in on just requiring everybody to be zero trust, which is the farthest thing from a standard there is. It's whatever you want it to be. Well, uh, I think this is a chance for everyone to sit up and take note because it sounds like this strategy document is going to have a lot more implications down the line. Um, but I think that's all we have time for today. So I want to say a huge thank you uh, to Richard for joining us this week. We'd love to have you back. That was really great insight, and I really appreciate your time. Crystal and Jack, thank you so much for being here. Um, and we look forward to our next live event. Um, and to everyone on LinkedIn, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next week. <music>